everyone. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. If your model railroading is fueled by a thirst for knowledge of the prototype, then you'll want to hear what our two guests on this episode have to say. Bill Schomburg, in his position as editor of Railroad Model Craftsman magazine, devotes quite a bit of space to publicizing and promoting the growth of the railway prototype modelers movement within the hobby. Jim and he will chat later in the show. That's right, Trevor. But first up, and a good fit with Bill's topic, is Trevor's guest, Lance Mintime. Lance's articles in Model Railroad Planning and his books on layout design based on gritty real-world locations are taking modelers in new creative directions. Take it away, Trevor. How many times have we been talking to a fellow model railway enthusiast and they've described their layout in terms of how big everything is and how much stuff they have? You know the conversation. It's the one that starts with, I have 1,500 square feet of train room, 150 locomotives, and over 1,000 freight cars. And it often ends with, when I build my dream layout, or someday I'm going to build all those freight car kits, or there sure is a lot of great stuff on television these days. Model railway enthusiasts tend to focus on quantity. The bigger the layout, the better. And for a few of us, that's a great path to take. But our next guest feels that for most of us, those who are juggling a family, a career, and other hobby interests as well as model trains, this is one of the biggest traps into which an aspiring layout builder can fall. Through his books and articles, he makes a compelling case that an achievable layout might be our best shot at that dream layout. Lance Mintheim is the owner of the Shelf Layouts Company, a custom layout building and design firm. He's also a well-known author whose byline has appeared in several model railway publications, and in recent years he has been self-publishing a series of books, including my favorites, How to Design a Small Switching Layout and How to Build a Switching Layout, and we'll add links to the Model Railway Show website so you can find those. At home, it should come as no surprise that Lance models two industrial spurs in shelf layout style, both based on the CSX in Miami in HO scale. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Lance. Thanks, Trevor. Great to be with you today. Now, what do you feel are the potential pitfalls of planning to build a large and complex layout? Well, let me start, Trevor, by saying that I might give the impression that I'm against large layouts, and that's really not the case. What I'm really advocating is if you are going to go that route, to do so with your uh, eyes wide open. In other words, really knowing what you're getting into. And I think that's the trap people fall in. It's not so much that they make the error of jumping into a large layout as that they do so without any experience. And I would say if you have an individual that's built you know, a number of layouts in the past, they have the space, they really know what they're getting into, and they need it for a specific reason. There's nothing wrong with a large layout. For example, somebody that's very interested in timetable and train order options operations um, that really needs the length you know, to make the game unfold has a specific reason to do that. Unfortunately, I think we fall into the trap of seeing a lot of these types of layouts in the press and thinking that bigger is better and that's the only way to go. And it really comes down to knowing your own situation. If there's no compelling reason to have a layout that large, you really need to think twice about it because there are pitfalls or there is a kind of another another side to the sword there in that along with the long mainline runs, there's a lot that goes with you know having a large layout, for example. One is just the sheer mass of getting it up and going. I mean, we like to see success early, and if we have a massive layout, that may be some time coming. You know, it does take a fair amount of construction skill, and it's fairly common I'll see somebody that wants to embark on a large layout as a first attempt, and I don't think that's a good idea. Some other things that you run into is really underestimating the number of people that are going to be willing to operate it, and if you are lucky enough to get it up and going, you may be able to get some operators the first year or two, but once the newness 
wears off, you may have a problem if you need 20 or 30 people to run the layout and you can't round them up. And then you have this massive machine in your basement that's just you running it. The other thing is maintenance layouts do wear out slowly over time and what starts out is you know maybe just a, a structure that got knocked over a tree that fell over here and there over time that can snowball to the point where it becomes overwhelming and if you have you know that 1500 square foot layout that's a lot of work to keep them going so those are just some of the things you have to keep in mind now in your book on designing a switching layout the thing i found the most eye-opening was that very first chapter called strategic planning that's something that i a lot of modelers don't think about when they're starting to uh, design their layout. What's that all about? Well, really, we need to think about what we want. In my view, actually drawing the track is the easiest part. You know, being a little introspective or having self-awareness requires thought. And because it's not so easy, I think often we gloss over that and we quickly put a pen to paper or start the CAD drawing. And the problem is we've skipped the most important part of the process, which is what do we want the layout to do? I mean, what are we looking to get out of it in terms of entertainment value? How do we want to relate with it? More importantly, I think we often skip over, you know, really what our resources are in terms of time, energy, money. You know, if you're in a situation where you have several kids and you're running them all to extracurricular activities and you have a busy job and you have a lawn, a lawn to mow, that has to be factored in. So you really need to think about what you want from the layout before you start drawing track. And I think one of my favorite phrases is if you do not do that, you could correctly draw the wrong layout. In other words, have a layout that looks correct technically, but is just a poor fit for your situation and that you don't enjoy owning. So you really advocate that people People sit down and ask themselves some hard questions and get honest answers to those questions before they start deciding what sort of layout they're going to fit into their space. Even if they have that 1,500 square foot train room, they might not want to use all of it for trains. That's exactly right. A lot of my customers are physicians or business owners, and you know, I think they've made the wise decision not to go um, too large. I mean, if you're a doctor and you're on call and maybe you're teaching on top of that, you really don't have a lot of time. So maybe that's really not a situation where you want to get into this huge layout, uh, maybe have something that fits into your situation. But I think getting back to your strategic planning, you really need to think about what your true interests are. And we all have different ones. I mean, some of it's scenery, some structures, uh, some operations, and you need to design the layout towards that specific area of interest. Now, anyone who has seen photos of your layouts has seen firsthand the effectiveness of visual balance in action. That's something that you talk about a lot in your books. What is visual balance and why is that important? Well, in terms of visual balance, I think we make the mistake of thinking in terms of individual scenes instead of looking at the overall project as a whole. And when you look at individual scenes, what happens is you're trying to make them all be knockout vignettes on their own, but maybe they don't interrelate. And you end up with something that viewed as a whole maybe is not that appealing. So you want to really look at it more as a broader expanse of perhaps an interesting scene here or there, separated by the routine as far as, you know, two or three feet for just maybe a grassy, scrubby field or a abandoned lot. But I think there's, I guess, an overlying uh, sense of panic that if we don't put everything in the kitchen sink in, that the layouts will be boring. And that's really not true, particularly when you consider most of us don't even get close to finishing one layout. 
there's really not that much pressure on us to, when you think about it, to have every square inch having a, you know something that draws a viewer in. It gives your eyes a chance to relax between those scenes and probably gives the, the scenes that are detailed more punch. And more credibility, too. I mean, it's, you know, when you look outside or you're driving down the road from town A to town B, if you're in Illinois, there's a lot of just fields and, and emptiness from one town to the next, and that's there's a lot of value in incorporating that. Now, you raised an interesting point in that conversation about people being afraid that if they don't pack it in, they're going to, that it's going to be less of a layout. And one of those things that I think drives people to build really large layouts is they say, I need a lot of layout to have a lot of operation. But you suggest some ideas in your books for using operations to make even a small layout feel a lot larger than it is. It's hard to talk about operations in an audio only format because the first thing you want to do is get out a pencil and paper. But can you give us a couple of examples of of how operations can be used to enhance a a small layout? Sure. And I mean, just giving my own example is, you know, when you're younger, particularly as a kid, I mean, you get out there and you put the trains on there running like the Chattanooga choo-choo 100 miles an hour and you get from point A to point B, skipping everything an actual railroad does and then wonder uh, why your operating sessions are over so quickly. And if you just incorporate a third of what an actual railroad does to move from point A to point B, it gives you a lot more to do. It makes things more interesting. You know, you slow the trains down so you can watch them longer. You know, for example, in a lot of industrial areas, just getting across the street is a process you know, in terms of stopping, making sure traffic is stopped, throwing out the fusees, and the more of those types of things that we can model, the more time it's going to take to get through the operating session, which effectively makes the layout seem much larger. Now, you've done a lot of that on your own layouts. I know I've seen articles by you on using uh, fusees in roads and things like that. You're obviously a big fan of observing real railways and then using the lessons that you get from that to form the basis of your own layout designs for everything from track arrangements to switching practices. What's the attraction to you for that and what sort of reward are others going to see if they follow that example? I think for most of us, the reason we do all this is that we're fascinated by by layouts and we want a copy of that in our basement so that we can... so we can have the experience whenever we want. So that's really, I think, what we're trying to do. And I think, you know, after 35 years, I'm still in awe when you go to trackside and just see how huge these things, I mean, just the sense of mass and power. So number one, just being able to go down and see it is a thrill in itself, you know, and then being able to copy that in your basement just allows you to relive the experience uh, when you're in the mood to do so. Lance, this has been delightful. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. You're certainly welcome. Lance Mendheim is the author of several books, including How to Design a Small Switching Layout and How to Build a Switching Layout. Thanks, Trevor and Lance. I had the pleasure of meeting Lance a while back at the Naperville RPM meet, and his clinic on adopting prototype scenes was one of those sea-change moments for me, just as was Bill Darnaby's clinic the year before. And you know what I'm talking about. You come home, and your layout doesn't look quite as good to you as it did before you left. (laughs) Well, you know, that's one of the hazards of hanging out with the high achievers, Jim. Next up is a man who maintains high editorial standards and hangs out with a lot of the high achievers, too. He's Bill Schomburg of Railroad Model Craftsman. It's very much a magazine for people who not only like to build things, but also enjoy the written word. And that's probably due in part to Bill's past life as a high school history teacher. Bill's a man of many interests, commuter railroading, narrow gauge, quarry modeling, and prototype modelers meets. Here's Jim with Bill. When one is looking to do his or her best model building, the real thing can't be beaten for reference. Just copy everything the prototype did or does. Now, there is a simple directive that can have large ramifications. 
But exact replicas remain our hobby's holy grail. Within this richly textured hobby of ours are a growing number of specialty meats, among them prototype modeling meats, also called RPM meats. The always affable Bill Schomburg is a big fan of them. As the editor of Railroad Model Craftsman, he often writes of them in his editor's notebook, and he's with us now. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Watch him. I enjoyed taking in your commuter rail clinic at uh, the Naperville meet recently. Uh, any more presentations up your sleeve? Uh, yeah, you know, you don't like to do the same one over. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but actually, I'm, I'm going to try to follow this passenger car thing for a little while. It's just, it's just fun. I'd like to learn more about commuter equipment and how it fits into the grand scheme of things. And I've, I've got some ideas. And I don't want to do a, a, an equipment catalog, but there's relationships out there. And the nice thing about commuter train, you know, is that there's a lot of them. They run like streetcars almost, so they're they're always there on the prototype sometimes, and they're always there on the models sometimes. So it's it's. Well, I I, I think I'm going to explore this for a while. Yeah. Well, I just want to tell anyone if you ever get a chance to take in a Bill Schumper clinic, uh, please do so because uh, you're a great entertainer. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. So, in your words, uh, why are these meats worth our attention as modelers? These RPM meats. Oh, yeah. uh, you know. Like, I guess we can say that we're all sort of social beings, even the lone wolves. And uh, the prototype meets are a place where they, uh, we all can get together. Uh, so there's that gathering instinct that I think, you know, modelers do tend to have. We like to show our work off, and this is, of course, a venue for that. But to some extent, I think we're all prototype modelers, aren't we? Uh, even the people that are more artistic, more fancy, uh, fanciful, more freelance, we're modeling a real object, real objects in a real environment. It has a real history, and then, you know, that affects how we model. Yeah, good point, because even if we free Freelance, the prototype exists as our inspiration. So in one way or another, it is going to influence what we do. Right. Should people who consider themselves just average modelers shy away from these meets? Agreed. It's pretty high-end modeling in many cases. But this is not some mutually exclusive club. The doors always open at these things, and the modeling that's on exhibit is good, but it certainly runs a range of what we do as modelers, including a range of skill levels, a range of the amount of work someone's put into a particular model. And if you go to the RPM meet, you'll see a broad range of things. Yeah, you'll I- see things in progress, too, which I think is one of the values of these meets. A model that's being rebuilt or a model that's being redetailed. So, yeah, the average guy belongs there. I mean, this isn't some private club with a gate at the door. No. I'm fairly new to these meets, uh, Bill, but that's what I have found. Not only there are, are there a lot more models on the tables than you'll often get at model railroad conventions, the people are often standing right next to them because the model room becomes the social focal point of the get-together. So you can always find the guys that have built these models and ask them about their techniques. Yeah, each meet seems to have a different character, a different pattern, but there are certain uh, continuing strands, and one of them, as you say, is this meeting the guy who's built the thing. And in some meets, there's fewer clinics and more standing around by your models, and other meets, there are, of course, clinics and stuff. But yeah, it's like, uh, well, I'm giving you I'm a narrow gauger, okay? I'm out of California in 1940, a very obscure railroad in the real world. You know, it's not the mother church, the real brand. But Stoffen Enbaum, who lives in Sweden, I met him at an RPM meet some years back, got to talking about painting the Vatican narrow gauge boxcars. They're always described as a bright red, and I could never get the paint to look bright on my boxcars the way I thought a bright, dark red should look. And he said, well, why don't you try underpainting your entire model with white? Now, this is a guy who is one of the finest great northern modelers and his, historians in our in our industry, in our hobby. He was in Sweden, and he's passing on information to me, a guy who's modeling some little railroad off in California 40 years ago. Yeah, you, you would expect that. So, yeah, we, we should all go to these things. Well, the techniques that you mentioned, they actually do cross modeling boundaries and preferences. Yes. What sort of growth have you witnessed in the prototype movement, Bill? I, I suppose that could mean personal growth at the modeling level as, as well as growth in attendance of these things. Is there a way that you personally have been able to track the progress of these meets? I don't have any numbers, but I have a 
feel for going to these things. First, in terms of the people attending them, the numbers have been growing up. The RPMs have been around in some form, well, actually in a formalized form, for about 26 years now, 25, 26 years. It started really in California for modern modelers. What's happened over the years is that they're no longer modern prototype modelers. A lot of those guys, of course, are still modeling. Say 25 years ago, they're still modeling SD40s or traditional air equipment, but that was modern in those days. What we've seen now, of course, is, is a much broader uh, time spectrum for the people, you know, the people's modeling interests, but also the number of attendees. It just keeps going up. Uh, Naperville started out with about 125 people, and now they've had as many as three, 400, 500 people, almost 500 people there at Naperville. The other thing is that, of course, there's there's more of these meets all across the country. And some of them are fairly small, 40 to, you know, 100 people. Some of them are quite large. But, I mean, you can't put your hand on a map in North America and not run into a prototype modeling meet, you know, somewhere on that map. And this is from coast to coast in both of our countries. It's a point well taken, Bill, and I think people who don't picture themselves as travelers should maybe just uh, substitute a couple of the local shows they go to every year and maybe just, you know, save up for a train ticket or a plane ticket to get to one of these because it, yeah. I, I think it really would alter their outlook on the hobby in many ways. You know, there's a few big ones in a sense. National. Naperville is as close to a national event as we're going to get. Uh, Cocoa Beach in Florida in January is as close as, as close to a national meet as we're going to get. But a lot of these are really very regional. Uh, here in New Jersey, there, there was a small one just about a month ago, and guys who were living in this area got together. Uh, over in Pennsylvania, there's kind of a cluster, and uh, they hold one at Pittsburgh, and they hold one in Philadelphia every, every other year opposite each other. And yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely local. They're easy to get to. Yeah. You know? And they're like a, ha- a half a gas tank away in terms of driving. Good way to put it. So a lot of our one-day meets, too. Uh, some magnificent models have been built over current NMRA standards wheel sets, but now the, the proto groups, you've got Proto 87 and Proto 64 and S scale and, and Proto 48, they are now crossing that final modeling frontier into scale wheels and realistically detailed uh, track. Are the prototype modeling meets helping to propel the growth of Proto, do you think? I talked to somebody recently on the Proto 48 side, and he said that most of the recruits, if we'll call them that, for Proto 48 come from the HO scale modeling community. For Proto 87, I don't know. I, I think there's a few, a few people are going to see these things at events like this. They're going to see information on the internet. They're just not going to be satisfied with the coarser wheel sets and the coarser track standards that have been traditional. I don't know if the prototype meets have actually propelled that, but they, they certainly don't hurt. And they provide, again, a venue. It just occurred to me, Bill, that these uh, prototype meets, uh, they are getting people who are committed to doing better modeling. It, it just seemed like a natural jumping off spot uh, for some. I think you're right. Uh, I, it's part of that, the building blocks of, of what's happened in this hobby over the years. The RPM movement has had a great effect on the quality of the models that we see on today's on hobby shop shelves. Yeah, I mean, these are the guys who push. These are the guys, 25 years ago, there was a standard paragraph almost in an HO scale modeling article on, let's say, upgrading a boxcar. It was take three doors, cut it in half, make two, <laughs> remove the claws. And all of a sudden, something came together in the mid-80s. And wow, the modeling community really pushed on this. And it caused the, the smart manufacturers to take notice. And boy, it's a, it's a rocket ship now. It's yeah. just flying. Yeah, so time's flying, Bill. I'll just close this by noting, if for no other reason, go to a prototype meet to meet some of the heroes that you've only read in print. Bill, thanks for being with us today. Thanks a lot. Have a real good day. Bill is the editor of Railroad Model Craftsman. He's been enlightening us on the importance of prototype modeling meets. Thanks, guys. If you haven't taken a look at an RMC lately, you owe it to yourself to do so. Check out the links to their website at themodelrailwayshow.com. And the same goes for our first guest, Lance Mendheim. You can also find the link to his custom layout service and his layout design books on our website. 
Next time on the show, I'll be talking with Dick Carnes, a noted S-scaler, about estate planning for model railroaders. And I'll be speaking with O-scale trains editor Mike Kogel about a new book that he's written and published on detailing track. And I have to tell you, it's not just for O-scale folks. Thanks as always to Dave Woodhead for the music and Otto Vondrack for our web design. Chris Abbott is our technical advisor. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. We'll catch you next time on the Model Railway Show. Thank you.